In practice, many churches' pulpits seem to unofficially rely upon a canon within a canon, a portion of the Bible preachers turn to because its content is explicitly Christian. The canon within the canon is some portion of the New Testament. However, the Old Testament is just as Christian as the New Testament. This axiomatic truth is confirmed through a myriad of internal principles and reading strategies. But as Dr. Craig Carter has stated, the bottom line is that, quote, a certain kind of reader with a certain kind of document in the light of a certain type of God, close quote, will trump rigid steps and rules of interpretation. All Christians are urban Christians. Whether you live in Graceville, Florida, or Chicago, Illinois, the believer is on a pilgrim's journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. As we endeavor to live unto God in this world, our faith looks for the city which is to come, whose architect and builder is the living God. You are not alone on your journey. As you travel the narrow way, know that a great cloud of witnesses went before you. Many travel alongside you, and while the Lord tarries, many will follow the same path after you. But until the heavenly city is brought to us, or we to it, one such pilgrim is your fellow traveler. He is Urban Puritano. In practice, many churches' pulpits seem to unofficially rely upon a canon within a canon, a portion of the Bible preachers turn to because its content is explicitly Christian. The canon within the canon is some portion of the New Testament. However, the Old Testament is just as Christian as the New Testament. This axiomatic truth is confirmed through a myriad of internal principles and reading strategies. But as Dr. Craig Carter has stated, the bottom line is that, quote, a certain kind of reader with a certain kind of document in the light of a certain type of God, close quote, will trump rigid steps and rules of interpretation. 2 Samuel 5, 6-10 is a test case for an approach to reading, teaching, and preaching the whole Bible that does so Christianly, that is to say, Christocentrically. Stay tuned as we scratch the surface on Jerusalem and Jesus. On a difficulty scale for a redemptive historical preaching text, 2 Samuel 5, 6-10 would be scored low. This passage details David's conquest of Jerusalem and the siege at Zion that established David as the undisputed warrior king of God's covenant people, Israel. Just because the redemptive historical difficulty score for this passage would be low doesn't mean that it's a walk in the park, but it could be what some old-school Dutch Reformed believers refer to in the days of way back as a bicycle ride through the Bible. Redemptive preaching is like a bike ride through the Bible because you experience being transported from point A to point B. Everything about the journey is important, the right starting point and end point, 
guarantees that you are on the right journey. The journey involves determining the communicative intent of 2 Samuel 5, 6-10. The seed for this idea came from reading a book by Jung Hoon Hyun called Redemptive Historical Hermeneutics and Homiletics, Debates in Holland, America, and Korea from 1930 to 2012, from the West Theological Monograph series. As I was reading this book, the author was considering a Korean seminary professor and pastor named Dr. Suk. Dr. Suk preached a sermon entitled, The Redemptive Historical Implication of Recapturing Zion, based on 2 Samuel 5, 6-10. I was intrigued and stimulated by that title and the text. Dr. Hewn writes, quote, Suk described first the historical and literary context of David's recapturing of Zion through examining scriptural texts before and after the event, and then explained that Zion symbolized the Old Testament church, and then explained that the New Testament also adopted this name. Finally, just as David recaptured Zion, the fortress, and made it God's dwelling place, Christ also recaptured his people from the enemy to form his church. Can you see why I was intrigued? I think that all preachers and teachers should find this approach to the passage thoroughly fascinating. Indeed, any reader of Scripture should be intrigued. What then would be a right starting point for a right reading of Scripture? We can begin our journey in broad terms by analyzing the text's literary and historical content and context, respectively. Feel free to add to these. As we go along on this journey, we will see how appropriate it may be to allow the canonical context to inform our reading of this passage. After all, there is the Calvinistic hermeneutical principle that no text of Scripture is an island unto itself. Scripture interprets, enriches, enhances, augments, supplements, complements, and aggrandizes Scripture. Scripture does a similar work on the hermeneut as well. The question is, does 2 Samuel 5, 6-10 lend itself to a fully-orbed analysis that results in a legitimately Christocentric reading? Dr. Suk certainly believed so. After considering the verses he adduces, so do I. Let us read 2 Samuel 5, 6-10, and then consider its literary and historical contexts. The Word of God says, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you. Thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Now David said on that day, Whoever climbs up by the way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore they say, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the Milo and inward. So David went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. 
The literary context of 2 Samuel 5, 6-10 encompass what immediately surrounds this passage. Verses 1-4 through detail Israel's tribal leaders unifying under David's rule and his anointing by them to officially inaugurate his reign. Verses 11-25 through complete chapter 5, and it details how David's influence was strengthened and expanded. He received gifts from one foreign kingdom, Tyre, while receiving the Lord's blessing to defeat another foreign kingdom, the Philistines. The historical context includes the fact that this is Israel's monarchy 2.0, so to speak. King Saul suffered a mortal physical wound on the field of battle long after suffering a mortal spiritual wound of pride, disobedience, and rebellion against God. The monarchy so desired by the people of Israel was a failure, both temporally and spiritually. Remember, it only came about because the Israelites wanted a king so they could be just like the other nations. Their request represented a direct affront to God, and that evaluation was from God himself. But in back of even this sin, the sin of rejecting God's kingship, God would show that the human propensity to put their hopes in earthly monarchs would surely do nothing less than disappoint. Moreover, far from dethroning God, he would be shown to be the matchless monarch. These are the circumstances under which David became king. For all his faults, however, he wanted his throne to be aligned and eventually identified with God's throne. O.P. Robertson rightly observed, quote, David seems to have envisioned the merger of his throne with God's throne. He intended to build a house for his God at the capital city of his kingdom. 2 Samuel 7, 1-3 Close quote. Perhaps another day we can consider that passage and the Davidic covenant spoken of in the rest of that chapter. For now, it is enough to conclude that for literary and historical contextual reasons, the section we are dealing with may suggest deeper significance than what surface-level considerations can yield. But note well, to say that this or any passage of Scripture has a deeper meaning does not denote a dual meaning, and much less an arbitrary and capricious quadruple meaning of Scripture. A right reading of Scripture doesn't bifurcate a literal sense from a spiritual sense. Much less does a right reading of Scripture multiply the sense of Scripture into four capricious and arbitrary compartments. The meaning of Scripture is not manifold in any way resembling the reading strategies of distinctly compartmentalized renderings of a text. On the other hand, neither is the sense of Scripture exhausted by its grammatical and historical facts. The right reading of Scripture acknowledges that the literal is the spiritual. The single sense is the sensus plenier. Dr. Suk indicates in the title of his sermon how he chose to proceed. He uses a redemptive historical approach to yield the deeper, not dual or quadruple meaning of this seminal passage. Since I don't have the content of his sermon, however, I am in the dark on how he developed his message, but not in total darkness. The redemptive historical approach seeks to go beyond a superficial understanding of the text 
and follow the organic development of scriptural revelation to track and follow the unfolding of how both the biblical authors and the divine author used a person, place, event, etc. to unveil a fuller picture of the truth. A right reading of Scripture requires, then, what the Reformation called the analogy of Scripture and the analogy of faith. These roughly correspond to biblical theology with its chronological principle of organizing scriptural data and systematic theology with its logical principle of organizing scriptural doctrines, respectively. Now, in order to move forward and to show a dissatisfaction with both superficiality and ivory tower theories of interpretation, for our purposes, I'd like for us to get our hands dirty. Always have your Bible at the ready. Keep it right next to you. Because this passage is part of the narrative genre, we can begin to observe and provisionally analyze its textual structure along the lines of its chronological order. This feature or affordance lends itself as an entryway for analysis. The story of David taking Jerusalem and the siege at Zion has a beginning, a middle, and an end. King David and his men went to Jerusalem after his anointing by the unified elders of Israel. David and company were met with opposition from the Jebusites, who inhabited Jerusalem and expressed arrogant confidence in their stronghold at Zion. David pronounced a determined mental purpose to obliterate their opposition owing to a deep hatred for them. He specified how Israel would defeat the Jebusites, and the final result was complete victory. David, according to the text, became greater and greater because the Lord of hosts was with him. It's a very straightforward account. This passage describes a cast of characters brought together in a city in which a sequence of events takes place. Action ensues. Readers may use the affordance of the sequence of events to formulate a basic provisional outline. Yours may be different. Roman numeral 1. David came. Roman numeral 2. David saw. Roman numeral 3. David conquered. A good working title can simply be David's Conquest of Jerusalem and Zion. We can fill out the details relevant to this passage by asking and answering some questions. Roman numeral 1. David came. What was the setting that the events took place in? David came to Jerusalem, that ancient city known and inhabited by various people groups since the days of Genesis. Known variously as Salem, Jerusalem, and even Jabus, because the Jebusites were the latest pagan people to dwell there. Despite the fact that Jerusalem was given to the tribe of Benjamin, from which King Saul originated, but never retaken, it was very much in the Jebusites' control. This makes David's confrontation that much more momentous. The contest is one of David's audacity versus the Jebusites' arrogance. He was not content in containing them. Conquest was the only option. Conquest, not containment. The Jebusites weren't innocent victims of Israel's dreams of expansion. 
they were not neutral parties with whom reason could prevail. These were recalcitrant rebels against God who occupied land that did not belong to them. They were on holy ground defiling it and defying the anointed king. They willfully ignored that payday would be someday and they were prepared to insolently do battle to the last man. They said as much. As a prelude to actual battle, they verbally battled and directed their taunts towards David. They said, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you. Their words matched their thoughts in perfect harmony because they were defiantly convinced David cannot come in here. The question arises, Who are the lame? Who are the blind? Referred to by the Jebusites. Whoever they are, these lame and blind seem to be the special objects of David's hatred. Verse 8 says that the lame and the blind were hated by David's soul. It was widely known that no blind or lame would enter or dwell in his house. So help him God. The scene is set before us with two determinations juxtaposed. Jebusites' determination to repel King David's siege expressed in their taunt, the blind and the lame will repel you, and David's determination to attack and eliminate the lame and the blind first. As the chiastic structure of the text emphasizes, the stakes were whether Jerusalem would be made the capital of the United Kingdom of Israel as a city of David. Either the blind and the lame would prevail for the Jebusites, or they would be defeated by David's command. What side of this ironic, indeed iconic, equation would be solved? Whose determinations and aspirations will be fulfilled? Whose city and fortress is it? Herein lies a difficulty in understanding what is meant by the blind and the lame. The Jebusites were the first to mention the blind and the lame. David either takes for granted their meaning and adopts it, or he uses the terms with a different meaning. The Jebusites were clearly defiant. They saw Israel's defeat and loss of King Saul at the hands of the Philistines. To lose Jerusalem and Zion was not envisaged by them, and they firmly believed their mouths could write checks that their backsides could cash. That last sentence was a figure of speech. So is the phrase blind and lame. In the mouths of the Jebusites, this was an intentional verbal reproach to David, whose people were on a losing streak. This Jebusite figure of speech signified a taunt precisely because it was a verbal reproach towards David as a perceived, weakened opponent. So weak, even the blind and the lame Jebusite soldiers would be able to repel his attack. How did David respond? Did he magnanimously absorb the reproach as a noble, newly anointed king? David hears what they're saying loud and clear. He is, after all, a poet. Without hesitation, this warrior poet at least mentally declares his determination and his hatred, for they're blind and lame. In fact, these blind and lame can get it first, and once victory is achieved, he never wants to see any blind or lame ever again, 
much less in his own home or palace. As much as the Jebusites hated David, David reciprocated, and there's no denying he specifically targeted the blind and the lame. The question is, did David feel obligated to stick with their specific take, their usus luquendi? If so, David was simply expressing a particularly focused hatred towards Jebusite soldiers who were disabled. That would be his literalistic response to their figurative reproach. Perhaps David meant to imply that since their initial mention of the blind and the lame as a reproach to him, he would use the same phrase as an expression of the part for the whole. In this case, as much as David's ire was directed at the blind and the lame, he would certainly exercise all his might against the whole Jebusite fighting force. Perhaps David employed a synecdoche on the spot. This is an interpretive difficulty that the text of Scripture presents to us. Perhaps David was simply expressing his hatred towards disabled veterans because he was simply that kind of guy. Would it be reasonable to conclude that he never countenanced any of his own mighty men for suffering discapacitating injuries in the fields of battle, previously fought alongside him? Is the contemporary reader to be satisfied with such a literalistic interpretation? At least the interpretation that sees a synecdoche introduces a figurative possibility to David's hatred to the blind and the lame. I want to suggest that there is a meaningful wordplay occurring back and forth between David and the Jebusites. David does not operate under the obligation of the Jebusites' use of the blind and the lame. Neither should the reader. The blind and the lame spoken of by David refer not to actual people, but to actual idols or statues denominated as such by him. For all his faults, David's besetting sin, unlike much of Israel, was not idolatry. On the other hand, idolatry and the worship of statues held great appeal to the Jebusites and was the warp and woof of their existence. They expressed total confidence in their inert deities strategically placed along Zion's walls to prevent anyone, including David, from successfully sieging it. As much as David understood their initial taunting reproach of him, they heard what David was saying loud and clear as well. David's hatred for the Jebusites' lame and blind idols was religious at its core. Despite knowing that the statues could neither walk nor see, the Jebusites placed their faith in these lame and blind objects for victory over the nation, whose God was the Lord Almighty. Such is the blindness of sin. For this reason, David would not even entrust their presence as a trophy of victory in his palace once the siege was successful. The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Further confirmation of this reading is found a little later in 2 Samuel 9.3. In a most touching kingly scene, we find David looking for and finding a member of Saul's family to show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. It so happened that Jonathan left behind a son, Mephibosheth, who was lame in both feet and who was being hidden by his caregivers. 
in escaping with haste at the news of King Saul's and Jonathan's death, the boy was permanently injured and became lame. Nevertheless, King David sought him out in order to show the kindness of God. 2 Samuel 9.3 But Mephibosheth, David decreed, shall eat bread at my table, always, like one of the king's sons, despite being lame in both his feet. 2 Samuel 9, 10-13 David was just that kind of guy. So much for the blind and lame. And so we continue. Roman numeral 2, David Saw We have seen the cast of characters brought together in a particular place. David's gaze was now set to put his audacity into action. He was a military strategist and tactician. The objective was not to contain, but to conquer the stronghold of Zion. It was time to cash that Jebusite check, and King David was the currency exchange. What did David see that could be done against the Jebusites? After all, the battle for Zion would be an actual uphill battle, with the further aggravating requirement to breach the stronghold's walls. This was no cakewalk. Although the Jebusites' idolatry was irrational, their arrogant confidence in Zion's structure is at least understandable. This is the first recorded mention of Zion in the Bible, but most certainly not the last. As anyone can see by a perusal through the references in a reference or study Bible, Zion is subsequently used throughout the rest of Scripture to denote different things. It's as if Zion became paradigmatic for more than just a fortress conquered by King David. Dr. Wan Tae Suk capitalized on this biblical usage to enhance our understanding of David's conquest of Zion in 2 Samuel 5. Was he being an irresponsible reader of Scripture in importing future uses of Zion back into 2 Samuel 5? Well, were the biblical authors irresponsible writers in employing Zion to signify deeper but not dual meaning beyond the superficial significance of the physical fortress in Jerusalem? More pointedly, was the Holy Spirit wrong to inspire the use of the term Zion to signify a deeper, but not dual, truth regarding the meaning of Zion's conquest for all of God's people. This is where our own interpretive audacity or arrogance is revealed. Do we unduly close off the boundaries of meaning by a superficial grammatical-historical interpretation of Scripture? It seems to me that when Scripture uses Zion, in a paradigmatic fashion, readers and interpreters should pay attention. We must be audacious readers where the Spirit has been an audacious inspirer. But we must never be arrogant in ignoring the deeper, not dual, meaning that Scripture itself speaks of repeatedly. Zion is one example. It lends itself naturally from the text of Scripture to digging deeper than the historical sense. The grammatical historical significance in no way exhausts a text's single census plenier. All things considered, in the case of David's conquest of Zion, we can go so far as to say that it is 
an integrative motif that serves the people of God as a major redemptive historical marker as they take their bicycle ride through the Bible. This is no ivory tower, keep your hands clean, academic theory of hermeneutics. Let's consider some verses. Some verses, not all verses, relevant to how Zion is subsequently used by various biblical authors. We are just scratching the surface here. Let's just sample some verses. Psalm 74.2 The tribe of your inheritance, this Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Psalm 87.5 Of Zion it will be said, This one and that one were born in her. Psalm 102.13 Mercy on Zion. Psalm 128.5 Bless you out of Zion, the good of Jerusalem. Psalm 132.13-17 The Lord has chosen Zion. He desired it for his dwelling. There I will make the horn of David grow. Psalm 133.3 Descending upon the mountains of Zion. There the Lord commanded the blessing. Life forevermore. Isaiah 51.16 And say to Zion, You are my people. Do you see how taking the literal features of these verses namely the synecdoches and the metonymies made from Zion, draw our gaze to a paradigmatic aspect of the significance of Zion. Let's continue. Romans 11.26 The Deliverer will come out of Zion. Galatians 4.26 The Jerusalem above is free. The mother of us all. Personification there. Hebrews 12.22 You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. 1 Peter 2.6 I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. You know who that is, the Lord Jesus. Revelation 14.1 A lamb standing on Mount Zion. As we can all see by a perusal of subsequent passages, including some by King David himself, by figure of speech, the historical event of the conquest of Zion was so significant that it served as a paradigmatic symbol for the people of God, or the place where God dwelt in the midst of his people, and as a poetic and typological description of the Old Testament church. And not only the Old Testament church, but the New Testament representation of the church in its spiritual identity. The place hearkened back to can be taken for the people who lived there and continue to live there, not physically, but spiritually. Not the Jebusites, not exclusively the ancient Israelites, but the people of God in all ages. Like the Exodus event, The acquisition of Jerusalem and the conquest of the stronghold of Zion was a big deal that was destined to become permanently paradigmatic for God's acquisition of a redeemed people. That is precisely how it is used in the rest of the Old Testament, and it is carried over in the New Testament by the apostles to refer to Christians without hesitation or apology. Now, 
a brief excursus is in order before we continue. We chose to emphasize Zion as an integrating motif because it is frequently used as such by other authors and passages in the Old Testament and is further expanded in the New Testament. This supports having a notion of a deeper or fuller meaning of Scripture. A deeper, not a dual or an arbitrarily quadruple medieval multiplicity of meanings. Dual authorship, yes, the human and the divine. Double or quadruple meanings, no. Both the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith explicitly state that the true and the full sense of any scripture is one. They explicitly deny a manifold sense, which of necessity includes the arbitrary and capricious fourfold sense of the quadriga. Scripture's single sense is an axiomatic necessity that the signers and framers of the confessions took for granted, for the simple reason that to assert a dual or quadruple sense would be tantamount to allowing arbitrary and capricious boundaries to determine meaning, and thus would make communication uncertain and irrational. In fact, there are historical examples of very fanciful interpretive conclusions by the medievals. Also, this doesn't mean that the single sense is limited to superficial notions of lexography, semantics, grammar, history, etc., as important as they are. Why assume that? Both the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith confess that Scripture is pregnant with meaning. No text is an island unto itself. In fact, both confessions are explicit. They say, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which is not manifold, but one, it must be searched out and known by other places that speak more clearly. This is precisely what we try to model with the interpretive issues in 2 Samuel 5, 6-10's use of the blind and the lame and Zion so far. Meaning is singular, but it contained a figure of speech and a play on words in the former along with the introduction of an integrating theological motif in the latter. Meaning is in no way limited to the grammatical historical sense. In fact, leaving things at a grammatical historical level may not yield even a correct understanding at all. We mustn't unduly isolate what God did not intend for us to isolate. More often than we may think, there is a deeper, not quadruple, meaning behind the surface. On one occasion, the Lord Jesus asked his disciples, Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. And Jesus said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out his treasure, things new and old. Matthew Henry observed that, Truths mutually explain and illustrate one another. And the Bible, my friends, is our treasure of truth. It seems uncontroversial and almost a trivial point to emphasize that there exists a deeper, albeit single, census plenier in Holy Scripture. What is census plenier? Let's start with what census plenier is not. Census plenier is not infinite, manifold, 
quadruple, or even double meaning in Scripture. Neither is it a supposed emergent meaning perceived by the reader as he or she reflects on his life's experience in light of Scripture. That's just subjectivism. Census plenier simply refers to the fact that the meaning of Scripture can be enhanced, supplemented, augmented, and enriched beyond a surface-level understanding of what the human author of a text of Scripture intended. Whether the human author intended something deeper at the time of his writing is not important. Perhaps he did, or perhaps he didn't. That can be considered on a case-by-case basis. What is vital is to recognize that the original human author's intention is no barrier whatsoever for the divine author to embed his intended communication within the text of Scripture. 2 Samuel 5, 6-10 is a test case that Dr. Suk sought to elucidate its census plenier through the redemptive historical approach. So far, the conquest of Jerusalem and the siege of Zion is a recurring theme with definite Christocentric implications that we have only barely scratched the surface of. But apart from the redemptive historical approach to exemplify and elucidate a census plenier, the scriptures are replete with lesser examples. Perhaps some of these are redemptive historical, but they are not as flashy as King David conquering Zion. In any case, the bronze serpent, Jonah in the whale's belly, Abraham's two wives and two sons, those are biblical examples of texts obviously requiring a deeper yet single census plenier. Consider Galatians 3.24, which says, Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. Here, the Apostle Paul, under divine inspiration, or more precisely, the divinely inspired biblical text, states that the law had a Christological, no, a Christocentric function and intention. By means of the figure of speech called personification, the law is put forth as a pedagogue, or teacher, to do what? To lead us to Christ. Why? So that we may be justified. How? Not by the law, but by faith. What Christocentric concord is found in the Word of God? The whole Bible contains the unfathomable riches of Christ. The Christian interpreter must conclude that it was by the divine inspirer, revealer, and author of the law that this was so, regardless of the human recipient and author of the law. This hints at a reality all faithful readers of Scripture must face. The text of Scripture, as product of God's creation and design, is naturally, in the words of Dr. Mitchell Chase, quote, a Trinitarian accomplishment. God, by His Spirit, inspires biblical authors to foreshadow and pattern the Son. Close quote. In the case of 2 Samuel 5, 6-10, through 10, however, we've only touched on Zion's typological significance. But if Zion's conquest is typological, we must now come to terms with whether Zion's conqueror, David, is also typological. To conclude so would most certainly not be a fanciful interpretation. In fact, one of the major purposes of 2 Samuel was to show how the anointed king of Israel should rule 
and defend his people. Our passage happens to be a positive portrayal or snapshot of how a kingly rule and conquest looks like. This ends our excursus and we continue. Roman numeral 3. David conquered. David's mindset, words, actions, and ultimate victory are precisely the things the king of Israel had to do. To fall short of any of this would be to fall short of what a king of Israel should be. David's mindset was commitment to the Lord and his people. Verse 3 says that David made a covenant with the tribal leaders of Israel. This mindset led him to go to Jerusalem to pick a fight with the Jebusites. Live and let live was not David's mindset. It wasn't live and let die either. David's mindset here is to seek and to destroy the Jebusite trespassers. David's mission is his mindset. David's actions are merely his mindset revealed. His determined hatred for the lame and the blind and his devised plan of attack was based on it. The plan was audacious. It required his mighty men not to scale the walls from the outside, but to climb up by way of the water shaft, presumably from within the bulwarks. Difficult? Extremely. Necessary? Absolutely. Audacious? Without a doubt. Likely? The odds were stacked against David and Israel. Verse 7 says, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion and renamed it the city of David. So, I repeat my previous question. Is David, according to this passage, typologically related to Zion's conquest as typological? In answering that question, I ask another. Did Zion conquer itself? Zion was the fortress or citadel occupied by the Jebusites in land that didn't belong to them. It was rightly conquered and served as the capital of the United Kingdom of Israel in the most unlikely circumstances, given Israel's losing streak at the time. Given the term Zion's subsequent use in Scripture as paradigmatic for the people of God or for the place where God is united to his people, it seems textually relevant to link the conquered place with the person who was its conqueror. And just as there is a great gulf between ancient physical Zion and the Zion whose chief cornerstone is Jesus, the bridge connecting both conquered place and conquering person is the generative text-based category of typology. Yes, David typified Jesus. But mustn't types be explicitly identified as such? No, they don't need to be. A type can have either explicit or implicit textual warrant. Dr. Suk's methodology seems correct. If the Bible says that the conquest of Zion is theologically paradigmatic or typological of God's redemption in Christ in purchasing a people, his church, we can conclude that David prefigures or typifies Christ in that conquest. Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. 
But before we proclaim him, that is Christ, we must labor and strive in his power and in the Spirit's illumination to rightly read Christ's word. It was he, after all, who said, You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. So now we see the ultimate import of advocating for what is really uncontroversial, a deeper, not dual or quadruple census plenier of scripture. While there may be initial difficulty in drawing out non-obvious meaning beneath the surface of the biblical text, the more you prayerfully train yourself to read correctly, the more you will correctly conclude by a due use of the ordinary means that the Christ of Scripture is present in all of Scripture. This is no empty, falsely pious, wishful thinking. The Lord himself left us with a permanent rebuke for failing to see him in all of Scripture, as well as our hermeneutical charter. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, including Second Samuel, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the Scriptures. Why is Christ the warp and woof of Scripture? simply because he is the warp and woof of all of reality. The order of reality is both Trinitarian and Christological. In fact, for the order of reality to be Christological is for it to be Trinitarian. This leads me to some concluding thoughts. I have five concluding thoughts with the last one expanded for use in sermon prep or Bible study prep or Sunday school class prep. Number one, there is both a horizontal and a vertical dimension to perceiving in Holy Writ the veiled Christological vistas present throughout the Old Testament. Christian maturity moves from knowing and seeing Christ perhaps only through messianic prophecies or Christophanies to figures, types, and shadows. Why? Because as Matt Emerson has stated, quote, the text ontology demands it and is the reason Jesus says what he says in Luke 24 and Luke 16.31 and John 5.46, among other verses, close quote. Concurring with this line of thought, Luke Stamps observes, quote, in the perspective of the New Testament, it's not just that all of the Old Testament is about Christ. All of reality is about him. Colossians 1.15-20 Everything in creation exists from, through, and for the Logos. Of course that is true of the divine economy of redemption recorded in the Old and New Testament. The whole fabric of this economy is suffused with Christ. We have every warrant to see even more types and shadows and adumbrations of Christ in the Old Testament story. Close quote. This is not done in an arbitrary or capricious way, such as with the medieval eisegetical quadriga. No, it must be done by searching for the internal scriptural bond that emerges when one figural thing, event, or person gives start, continuation, or expansion to another thing, event, or person, as its maximal expression. 
Ultimately, the types and shadows are left in the text to be perceived, not by the clever writers, but by the one who, in the words of Mark Garcia, quote, traversed through redemptive history, leaving his figural presence in the inspired text. Close quote. Two, whenever a character in the Bible thinks, speaks, or acts in accordance with the enmity against the serpent, as detailed in Genesis 3.15, we are to ultimately see the sovereign work of God at work. He, that is God himself and God alone, will put enmity between the woman's redeemed spiritual descendants and the serpent. The conquest of Jerusalem and Zion display precisely that enmity. David, in thought, word, and deed, displayed ultimate loyalty to God as the true king and hatred for his recalcitrant enemies, the Jebusites, for encroaching on God's land and people. The theology of Genesis 3.15 must inform the rest of the Bible, including 2 Samuel 5, 6-10, because that enmity always finds expression in redemptive history. This passage looks backward to Genesis 3.15 as the spiritual source of the spiritual enmity, and through typology is able to look forward to ultimate Christological fulfillment in Jesus. Christ crushes the serpent's head on that cursed fortress known as Golgotha, upon which he shed his blood, and by dying for their sins, purchased, acquired, and secured for himself a people. This redemptive work is the crimson thread woven throughout Scripture, and which, informed by Genesis 3.15, implicitly argues for, as Tyler Whitman, in Bobby Jameson's book entitled Biblical Reasoning, does, all exegesis, quote, is prosopological ultimately, unquote. In the case of Second Samuel 5, 6 through 10, King David speaks from an undividedly loyal heart to God to carry out his purposes against the serpent's arrogance and defiance at that particular stage in redemptive history. Behind the Jebusites was the serpent of old, who is called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Number three, the temporal and spiritual stakes cannot be higher. Sin doesn't merely insult or taunt like the Jebusites did. It mortally injures and separates us from God. Is our hope in kings or princes? As the famous Reformation hymn states, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. This highlights for us the absolute necessity of Christ's office as king, he could have justly excluded us from the confines of his kingdom, but by omnipotent, sovereign, and efficacious grace, the Lord Jesus overcame all obstacles to acquire and redeem a people. And as creation, providence, and redemptive history attest, Christ rules over all things, 
Christ is our eternal King, who governs us by His Word and Spirit, and who defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of that salvation He has purchased for us, as the Heidelberg Catechism says. Question and Answer 31. Joel Beakey, the man who wrote the book on Reformed preaching, by the way, aptly states, quote, As the royal heir of the new creation, he will lead us into a kingdom of eternal light and love. Close quote. Number four. This exercise in backwards engineering a sermon entitled The Redemptive Historical Implication of Recapturing Zion by Dr. Suk of South Korea employed typology in the service of redemptive historical Christocentrism. I don't know if Dr. Suk would have agreed with everything I concluded or the means I used to get there, but I tried to privilege the text of Scripture. And as I mentioned towards the start, dear listener, maybe you can add more to what I've shared to enhance your understanding of the redemptive historical implications of recapturing Zion. If so, share with others for the glory of God and to bless your local church. Dig deeper, whether it's a metaphor, a motif, an echo, an organic progression, an expansion, an escalation, a formative influence, a faith tradition in the ancient Israelite community, the analogy of scripture, a single census plenier, a paradigm, a prosopological reading, typology, redemptive history. The interpreter, at whatever stage of maturity, has to get their hands dirty in handling the text. The text is pregnant with meaning, and all readers are to work smart and hard to arrive at a correct understanding by analyzing and synthesizing what is explicitly and implicitly in the scriptures. This is what I tried to exemplify in scratching the surface and handling this biblical text. It is simply axiomatic as a Protestant confessional reader of scripture to be committed to a single census plenier as opposed to anything resembling the arbitrary and capricious medieval eisegetical quadriga. Think of biblical hermeneutics as a large tent. It takes a lot to raise a tent. Regeneration of the reader is the right posture from which you would start, continue, and finish. This spiritual life primes us and reminds us of the scripture's divine origin and characteristics. And beyond this, the tools, ropes, stakes, and poles required are the previously mentioned strategies, consonant with scriptural and theological considerations involved in a right reading. And because of the order of reality itself, Christocentrism in biblical hermeneutics is like the one long tentpole in the middle of the tent. This central long tentpole makes all the other tentpoles, ropes, and pegs worth all the fuss. Number five, the rubber meets the road in teaching and preaching 2 Samuel 5, 6-10. Both pedagogically and homiletically, there's more than one way to skin a cat. And however you decide to skin this cat, never forget that everyone under your care as a teacher, but especially as a preacher or pastor, is a person who needs to hear and see Jesus. Why? 
because the point is not to merely convey facts, but to proclaim the one who is worthy of worship. Who is more worthy than King Jesus? My hybrid homiletical approach is as follows. 2 Samuel 5, 6-10 has the theme of David's conquest of Jerusalem and Zion, and the thrust of the passage shows us what was involved in such a kingly conquest. The subject is the kingly conquest of David. The complements, or what can be predicated of that kingly Davidic conquest, are that it involved unity, that it involved strategy and tactics, that it involved the Lord of hosts. This simple homiletical outline did not come to a novice preacher like me easily. I was asked to fill the pulpit before the Lord's Supper and considered that this passage I had been pondering for a while would be glorifying to God and profitable for the people. And so, under the aforementioned three heads that delineated what can be predicated of David's kingly conquest, according to this passage, I proceeded to develop the exposition by integrating my analysis of the passage accordingly. The resulting homiletical synthesis introduced the passage by reading it and asking what possible reason could a believer have to consider this event so long ago as vital for the Christian life in the here and now. The unexpressed and implied point is that we were about to take part in communion. Communion is obviously a vital ordained means so vital for the Christian life here and now, even though it was instituted long ago. As I progressed, I wanted to make clear some possible reasons that are to be rejected as to why this passage is vital for the believer. These included to be more like David or to have principles of victorious Christian living. I wanted to clear the road for a more Christocentric and redemptive historical understanding of this passage. Such an understanding of necessity results in abasing man and exalting God. It argues against man-centeredness and argues for Christ-centeredness. For example, in the first point, a kingly conquest involves unity between the king and his warriors. We are confronted with a sin problem of inescapable relevance. Namely, although the unity was present between David and his mighty men in the conquest of Zion, honesty demands that we have more in common, spiritually speaking, with the rebellious Jebusites than we do with David's mighty warriors. We can boast all we want to in our hearts, but all boasting will be brought to naught. Better to kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are those who put their trust in him. Trust in God and in his precious promises is vital for the Christian here and now. Point number two. A kingly conquest involves strategic wisdom and tactical cunning. Here the exposition sharpened and the integration between the analysis of the text and the Zion motif was explained by means of the redemptive historical progression of the Christocentric type and anti-type. Once again, we are confronted with the problem that sin poses for all of us. Quite simply, if it was up to any of us, we would ruin our situation. 
There is a way that seemeth strategically wise and tactically cunning to us, but the end thereof is spiritual destruction. This is the ruin we all find ourselves in outside of Christ the King. It is a hopeless and miserable predicament indeed. The good news dawns by means of the eternal decree of God and His meticulous providence in history, which really makes all of history redemptive history. We have, in the text of Scripture, from beginning to end, God's strategic wisdom and tactical cunning, summed up in the person and work of Christ. I make no apologies for this reformed emphasis on the absolute sovereignty, the omnicausal divine decree, and His meticulous providence over all things. What is the alternative? To put blinders on as I read the Scriptures? Or worse, to put blindfolds on as I preach the Scriptures? Maybe worse yet would be to proclaim from the pulpit the glories of a blind and lame God, no more worthy of worship than the idols of old, or the listeners in the audience. Lastly, what does Second Samuel 5, 6-10 through tell us that a kingly conquest involves? 3. A kingly conquest involves the Lord God of hosts, God incarnate himself. David's conquest and victory at Zion was temporal. Jerusalem and Zion eventually fell and were trampled underfoot. The Lord Jesus himself confirmed the finality and apocalyptic destruction of the ancient city of David. But Zion and King David were pictures or types of what was to come permanently and spiritually. Truly, David has slain his thousands. But the son of David, the Lord Jesus, has vivified and quickened his tens of thousands. Jesus, in his office as king, overcame the powers and kingdoms of this world, conquering Zion, even conquering his own people's spiritual death, to be united to us. We, the church, are the true Zion, and we worship the Lord because he has by grace alone converted Mount Calvary to Mount Zion. The same eyes of faith that enabled the poor, repentant thief to see Jesus as a king with, while he bled on the cross, can perceive Jesus' kingly shadow cast throughout Old Testament revelation. Thank you for joining us at Urban Puritano. We look forward to catching up with you on your next stop along your journey to the city prepared by God for all true believers.